This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to, well, just about anything. And we do eulogies, we do stories of songs, and every once in a while, we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past, stuff that, well, schools just aren't paying attention to anymore, but we're a part of our heritage for so long. And one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman. And his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on the subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths, see you tramping with the foremost. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize, world of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachment steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. From Nebraska, from Arkansas, central inland race are we. From Missouri, with the continental blood intervened, all the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh resistless, restless race, oh beloved race in all, Oh, my breast aches with tender love for all. Oh, I mourn and yet exult. I am wrapped with love for all. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. See my children, resolute children, by those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter. Ages back in ghostly millions frowning there, behind us urging. Pioneers, 
of pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping, pioneers, oh pioneers, oh to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world falling in, they beat for us with the Western movement beat, holding single or together, steady moving to the front. All for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved in varied pageants, all the forms and shows, all the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying, pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing, pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb, blow the brother orbs around, all the clustering suns and planets, all the dazzling days, all the mystic nights with dreams, pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us, they are with us, all for primal needed work, while the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading, we the route for travel clearing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh you daughters of the West, oh you young and elder daughters, oh you mothers and you wives, never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies, Shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest, you've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling, soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and parling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? Still be ours the diet hard and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? Did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way? Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, pioneers, oh pioneers. Till with sound of trumpet, Far, far off the daybreak calls. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it whine. Swift to the head of the army. Swift, spring to your places. Pioneers, oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of health stories here on this show. And sometimes they're tough, and always we're trying to educate you, the listeners, about how to lead better and healthier lives. And this next story is about a subject, well, it's a tough one, Alzheimer's, a disease that does not discriminate. One of our friends, Todd Stump, began caring for his mom just about five years ago, and not too long ago, she passed away. Todd shares his mom's and, ultimately, his family's story with us today. He starts off telling us what kind of person his mom was. She was squared away. Everything was organized. Everything was clean. She never walked out of the house. Um, if her hair wasn't done and she and, and her makeup wasn't on, and I'm not kidding, she always looked her best. Everything was all put together. That was my mom. If there's something really, really deep down that is an anchor in the personality of your mom or your dad, that if that starts to change, and it could be anything from mood or um, preferences or style or something like that, that is something that should be a red flag. I'll give you one. I hope this wouldn't embarrass my mom, but I'll give you one. My mother was elegant, and she was incredibly articulate. I never heard her use a curse word my entire life. Ever, not once, until about maybe six years ago now, something like that, she dropped something and she let out probably the the most gentle curse word (laughs) in the pantheon these days, right? And that shocked me. I mean, other people use the word a hundred times a day, and I think you can even say it on the radio now. But I'd never, ever, ever heard my mother say anything like that before. And we all were kind of amused by it, and she covered her mouth and kind of, uh, you know, was a little sheepish about it. That was strange. That should have been a red flag. Uh, Because it was something that was utterly uncharacteristic. A slip of the mouth turned out to be the sign of a terrible illness. It used to be thought that losing your mind as you grow old was simply the norm. Senility was the consequence of age. Now we have come to realize that it is actually a terrible disease. Alzheimer's. Sure, there are certain consequences of aging, memory is not as good. But Alzheimer's is not normal. When did Todd begin to notice the signs in his own mother? I didn't really pick up on signs until uh, my mother had already been diagnosed. It's a very interesting thing that I learned. The, the higher the intelligence, the patient, I should say, the greater ability they have to mask the symptoms. For instance, my mother later told me, she said she would have the picture of the image of what she wanted to describe along with the word in her mind she could visualize it so if it was a lamp she'd see a picture of a lamp in her mind and she'd see the letters l-a-m-p but she couldn't say it 
she could not make that connection, not close that loop. And it was very, very frustrating to her. She, she was an English major, a Loyola graduate here in Chicago. Uh, she spoke professionally uh, after uh, when she was uh, single, just out of college, giving speeches around the Midwest as a recruiter for a secretarial school. She wrote. Her father was a writer. So she had a, a great facility with the language. So what that allowed her to do was kind of um, work around her inability to grasp the right word. So I think my mother probably suffered uh, from this disease perhaps you know, two years earlier than we, we ever detected it. There are many who are trying to find out the cure for Alzheimer's disease. Here is Dr. Howard Fillett, the co-founder of the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, explaining what this disease is. I'm um, a physician scientist. I'm uh, a neuroscientist by scientific training and background and a geriatrician uh, specialist in the care of the elderly, particularly those with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is a chronic, progressive and ultimately fatal uh, neurodegenerative disease of the human brain. It particularly affects the parts of the brain that are involved in what we call cognition and emotion. Um, And it causes people to lose their memory, their language, their ability to think, to make judgments, to plan, ultimately to do things like tie their shoes and ultimately to they, people forget how to feed themselves and how to swallow, and they generally die from aspirating food and uh, pneumonia. Um, it's characterized pathologically in the brain by deposits of uh, abnormal misfolded proteins in the brain that we think are toxic. Um, one is called beta amyloid, and the other is called tau or tangles, and these are dying neurons. And um, so the disease generally affects people around 75 years old, and um, it's the leading cause of disability in the elderly. So these things called plaques and tangles get caught up in the brain and begin to slow things down, causing memory and ability malfunction, even causing people to forget how to do simple tasks and thinking that those closest to them are complete strangers. People begin to lose who they are, and their personality can often change. But it's not just the person with Alzheimer's that can change. Being a caretaker involves a lot of emotional stress. The thing I didn't quite expect to have to deal with was the amount of support my father needed. My mother was suffering from dementia. But it was my father who was with her every day, absolutely steadfast in his support and devotion to her, never once complained, never once complained, and never <laughs> never waned in his support. But I could see it was wearing on him. And what he needed was emotional support. He needed com- camaraderie. And old people who are caring for their spouse who has this disease. Older people are typically, I think, generally speaking, more isolated than younger people. A lot of their friends have passed, and they don't have 
they don't have as much ability to get out and form new, new friendships and the rest. So they feel isolated already, and then they're giving all of their emotional energy to helping their spouse. And there's not enough left in the tank. So I adjusted my clock to start eating dinner at four o'clock in the afternoon. So it was hard to get through uh, Final Jeopardy. Uh, the Final Jeopardy question before we were off to the dining room at the senior home uh, to have to have dinner. It was inconvenient, I'll say that, and it was um, a bit of an, an intrusion or disruption of my schedule. But it really meant a lot to him, and he would rarely talk about my mother in those over those meals because this was a a respite, a type of normalcy, a type of uh, kind of recreation that everyone else is engaged in. And he would ask me about my life. He would ask me about what's going on in business or socially, whatever it was, uh, because he just wanted to have some kind of bridge to the outside world um, to feel connected as well. I also made the habit of calling my father every day and not just to ask how about my mother because I knew if something changed my father would let me know or my brothers would let me know so I did that and I think it really helped him because he just felt like somebody out there was thinking about him because he was just to put some positive emotion and love and energy into his tank because I know he was all he was going to empty it every single day um, trying to give uh, that emotion share that positive emotions with my mother and when we come back more of our story about alzheimer's brought to us by the stetson family office and a part of our series better health and Healthcare outcomes at lower cost this is our american stories This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Todd's story. His mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and died just five years after. In the midst of caring for his mom, Todd realized that his dad needed more support, so he started eating dinner with him regularly. Then he made sure to call and talk to him on the phone, too. We pick back up with Todd, talking about how much this helped his dad. My parents were married 56 years. Uh, I don't think he remembers what life was like without her. And they have spent, other than hospital stays, they had been together every single day for 56 years. I don't know what that does to a person. Todd's father began to show a vulnerable side that Todd had never seen before. My father uh, was the toughest man 
And then this is the first time in my life where I saw him somewhat vulnerable emotionally or even physically. I'd never seen that before in my life. My father showed his affection in a lot, in a lot of ways, but um, it generally wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't verbally. And he said something to me, getting back to our, our chats over dinner. I had uh, stayed with him for two days. We just had dinner and finishing up, and I was going to head back to head back home that night into the city. And he said, "Oh, you're going tonight." I said, "Yes, I have to. I got some things to do tomorrow." I said, "When are you coming back?" And I said, "Dad, I, I'm not." I was a little frustrated because a little agitated, I should say, because I, I I didn't know I had taken two days out of my schedule, and I didn't know when I was going to get back, and I just felt a little pressure on me has come back and I said dad I just don't know I just don't know you're probably you know, two days from now or whatever the heck it was and I said is there something you need me to take care of because that is always the reflex what do you need and I was really unprepared for what he said to me he said I said why is there something is something you need and he just said to me no I just enjoy your company and <clears throat> He had never said anything like that to me before. I mean, I always knew he loved me, and he was always affectionate in a lot of ways, but never like that. Um, so we all changed in some ways, and that was um, that was a real interesting and positive and wonderful change for my father that I, I really appreciate. That I was I'm really grateful that I was able to kind of share that kind of experience with. This is a very difficult disease for family members. But when family is committed to helping preserve their loved one and slow down the progression, amazing things can happen. Todd's family was very committed to helping their mother the best that they could. Well, my mother has, uh, uh, we're three boys. We have no, uh, no sisters. Uh, my dad is one of three boys. Uh, my mother had uh, one sibling, a brother. So just a lot of guys in the family and guys are problem solvers so we didn't really take a lot of time to be emotional about it it was all rolling up our sleeves seeing what what could be done about it this was a little different because it's it's much more nuanced you can't just uh, write it down on paper and make a program and a schedule It, it takes minute by minute observation perception consideration and there's nothing that really can be done that we know of to fix it what you can do is to try to try to prolong the deterioration you can uh, try to mitigate the negative effects you can try to protect from harm to make sure that there's nothing dangerous happens but I found that the the thing that we really chose to do was to try to make life as pleasant and as meaningful for her as possible you almost wish it was a false diagnosis because all of a sudden you, you can't just you can't just put it off until tomorrow or next year. You need to understand 
your parent better now because the, the clock was ticking. And it's ticking for everybody in good health or poor health. But we had a warning. So what we did, besides just spending all that great time together, really took the time to ask important questions, big and small, but important, to find out what her life was really like and her memories and what her her family was like when she was young. Things I never knew and things you just kind of gloss over when you're younger. And I recorded a lot of these stories. We wrote a lot of things down. And I feel like I know her better. She told me as a little girl that her father, my grandfather, used to read to her at her at the foot of her bed as she'd fall asleep. And so I asked what was it that he would read and her favorites were Shelley and Poe and then immediately I remembered that she would have books on her desk on the shelves behind her desk and those were two of them that were prominent and I, I never saw her read them and it never occurred to me to ask why those books were there but those were the very books that he would read from and I'm glad I knew that because when we could no longer communicate I was able to kind of change roles a little bit and I would sit by her bed and read from those very same books and I don't know but I hope that on some level it reached her somehow Alzheimer's helped Todd to get to know his mother in a way he otherwise never would have Families of Alzheimer's patients will do nearly anything to help. The Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation got started because of a family whose mother and grandmother was suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Here's Dr. Howard Fillett again giving us the background of his foundation. I was taking care of um, of Estee Lauder um, and um, and and she had Alzheimer's disease. And um, so when the family saw the devastation that the illness brings, um, they committed a significant sum of money to um, start a foundation to um, to discover drugs to prevent and treat the, the illness. And, um, and they, they asked me to be the founding executive director. And so we started with a desk and a chair, and it's 20 years later, and we've funded, uh, we've deployed about $110 million in about five, over 500 drug programs in 18 countries. Uh, we're currently carrying a portfolio of over 100 drug programs that are active. And one of the things we've done that's innovative is that we've uh, set out in the beginning to fund uh, early-stage biotech companies that we're developing drugs for Alzheimer's, and that's been a very successful program for us. Uh, we've helped to build an ecosystem of uh, small biotechs that are developing innovative drugs for Alzheimer's disease and funding them through our investment model. Not only that, but Dr. Fillett had experienced Alzheimer's in his own family. It's the disease that took his father. It's devastating no matter who you are. A doctor, a famous businesswoman, and Todd. This is not an easy way to watch your parents die. Not that it's ever easy in the first place, 
But something about losing them before they're actually gone affects you deep within. And when we come back, the final segment of this Alzheimer's story, and it's a story so many of you are experiencing, we know that, and that's why we're sharing it with you. And again, it comes from the Stetson family office, and they're working hard to bring better health outcomes to the American people and worldwide, and also to work on cures, early stage cures, for some of these really hard diseases like Alzheimer's. And when we come back, the rest of this story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're returning to Todd's story. His mother died from Alzheimer's. And one of the most difficult parts of this disease is the emotional and financial burden it places on caregivers. And if you've ever been there, you know the story. And it'll touch almost all of us at some point in time through our families. And so we pick up here with Dr. Howard Fillett, the co-founder of the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. It's a very, very bad situation. It's, it's, it's very traumatizing. It's very stressful. Um, it's very difficult. And it's, it's a 24-hour, seven days a week type of effort, um, which a lot of people can't handle. Um, so that's why a lot of uh, Alzheimer patients, the nursing homes are filled with Alzheimer patients. About 80 to 90% of people in nursing homes today in the United States have Alzheimer's disease and most of them women. And that's because not only that women are at more risk for Alzheimer's disease, and not only just because they live longer, but also because often the, the men tend to get it a little bit earlier and the women take care of them and spend down all the money, and then um, the, the male spouse dies and, um, and the female spouse is left alone and impoverished. That happens not infrequently. So it's it's very, very hard caregiving, and we need we need more doctors and other kinds of providers in this space because the level of clinical care for people with Alzheimer's disease leaves a lot to be desired as well. It's the most expensive disease, raising health and living costs higher and higher. And yet, the treatments are not cures, just symptom-reducing. Those in charge are beginning to look at the prevention of Alzheimer's similar to the prevention of heart disease. That's why Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft and the Paul Allen Institute, realized they needed to get involved. They knew that they had the funds and the ability to get something started. They want to help fund research for Alzheimer's and other diseases, even working with the American Heart Association. I'm Tom Skalak. I'm the executive director of the Paul G. Allen Frontiers Group, which is a business unit in the larger Allen Institute. And the Allen Institute is the place where Paul Allen has attempted to realize his very expansive vision for creating new knowledge in the biological and medical sciences and bringing that new knowledge 
to impact on society. We've had very fruitful partnerships with the American Heart Association in the past. And then uh, we realized that the Heart Association shared our commitment to understanding brain health throughout the lifespan. And a big part of this is uh, understanding brain health well enough to know what goes wrong uh, during development of cognitive impairment, including Alzheimer's disease. And this has been a long-standing interest of Paul Allen. And so we, uh, we felt this was a very authentic partnership that would allow us to basically come together to make new investments philanthropically and push ahead research that might solve this very difficult problem of how the brain deteriorates with age and how we can uh, help it stay healthy longer. The specific mechanism is that we've just released a $43 million opportunity for either one or perhaps two centers to attack the problem of cognitive dysfunction and Alzheimer's disease in new ways. Um, what we mean by new ways is that we hope this money and these centers will attack the uh, chronic mechanisms and the biological underpinnings of how the brain deteriorates and how you lose cognition. In 2018, Alzheimer's and other dementias will cost the nation $277 billion. By 2050, this cost could rise as high as $1.1 trillion. That is an incredible expense. And the emotional price to be paid is high as well. Every 65 seconds, someone in the United States develops the disease. Unfortunately, it cannot all be prevented. And for some like Todd, it is too late. It's a sad story no matter who it happens to. But things are being done to educate people on living not just a heart-healthy lifestyle, but a brain-healthy lifestyle as well. Here's Dr. Paul Benheim. He started the program Brain Savers. He's also the author of the book Brain Training Revolution. So I'm Dr. Paul Benheim. I'm a board-certified neurologist uh, living in Phoenix, Arizona, and my passion is helping to educate uh, the public on lifestyle interventions that can significantly reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. For classical Alzheimer's disease, age is your biggest risk factor. You have about a 1% chance of getting this disease when you're 60. That more or less doubles every five years. And according to various large epidemiological studies, between 30 and 50% of the population over 80 will have Alzheimer's disease. And that's why there's this very concerted effort now in recognition of this huge medical tsunami facing us to find a way to delay the onset, reduce the risk, or ultimately prevent this disease. My focus now is on lifestyle factors that have been demonstrated to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. When I first came up with the idea for the company, I started Brain Savers to promote a brain-healthy lifestyle. This was far from mainstream. I mean, some of my academic colleagues would have looked at me with a suspicion that 
uh, I had gone off the deep end. But now uh, this is uh, widely accepted that lifestyle components can really have an impact on how your brain ages. Modest amounts of exercise would not only have an impact on the cognitive health of this nation, but also obviously on the cardiovascular health. The next component is uh, healthy nutrition. And basically, that's a Mediterranean type diet. My prescription, the one I follow myself, is eat healthy six days a week. And on that seventh day, if you feel like having a cheeseburger or a hot fudge sundae, do it. You know, life is for living. And uh, as long as you do a healthy diet, 90% of the time you're going to be okay. And, you know, I don't know if you, you know, I all say, I'd rather live to 80 with a smile on my face than to 90 bitter and disappointed that I <laughs> didn't partake in things that I like once in a while. There are things that can be done. And while we don't know everything yet about this disease, there is some great progress on the way. These things must be done and taken into mind before it is too late. It's not something that you can catch up on once you get to 65. We know that everyone must go at some point, but Alzheimer's is not the way. While Todd lost his mom to this horrible disease, he is able to share this sentiment. While it is sad, it gives us a spark of hope that not all is lost when Alzheimer's disease strikes. I was very surprised by a feeling I had when my mother passed. And that was, I felt like I lost my mother and got her back on the very same day. I, every day for the last four years, when I would think of my mother or someone would mention my mother, I would think of her in her present condition. That would be the immediate thing that would come to my head, and I don't think I reminisced much about the past at all. And then on the day my mother died, when someone would ask about my mother, that is, <laughs> that's not what I thought of at all. And now I don't think about that at all. I just think about um, what she was when she was younger and when she was healthy. And I remember the sound of her voice and all the wonderful things she did and how much people loved her. Uh, what incredible company she was. Just what a wonderful, wonderful person and what a wonderful, wonderful mother she was. And all those little memories on the day-to-day basis and all that kind of thing. That's what I remember about her. So I, I felt like that's how I got her back on that very same day. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. And thanks to Todd Stump, to Dr. Howard Fillett, and to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring this series. And the series is Better Health at Lower Costs. And we're learning that there are things we can do to prevent everything from heart disease to cancer and even Alzheimer's by the choices we make, particularly on the preventive side of things. A side, by the way, that our healthcare system doesn't reward or incentivize in any way. And we're digging into that and we're drilling down on that because it affects everyone listening. And to anyone who's 
around this disease. Our prayers are with you. Todd's story, our friend, his mom's, his family's, here on Our American Stories. with our American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College. We're celebrating This Day in History because next month the Tour de France will be taking place and there is only one American who has ever won this prestigious bike race. Greg LeMond was born this day in 1961. This is his miraculous story. For anyone under the age of 40, or for those of you who didn't notice the sport of cycling until Lance Armstrong's miraculous comeback in 1999, it can be difficult to understand and believe how popular American cyclist Greg LeMond was, how significant his Tour de France victories felt, and how deeply he touched lives. backyard was like the Alps. I was wild and into the wild. When I was eight years old, I discovered hiking, fishing, downhill skiing. Coaches said, you know, the best thing for skiing is cycling. I got to get a bike. Cycling was a counterculture sport. I kind of tend to not do what everybody else is doing. My dad bought one too. So we started riding together. There was magic to riding. Even by the end of August, we did a 100K ride and my dad and I got to talk and we were like best friends, like teammates. His early career promised greatness. Here's Greg and his father, Bob. I had a 76 Volkswagen van. We'd leave for the Bay Area or Southern California and race. They were amateur races, but Greg was doing very well. I won my 11 races and I'm, I'm bored. 16, 17 years old, I went to Europe by myself for two months with 75 bucks in my pocket. Everybody had this mentality that Europeans are unbeatable. They're mythical, actually. They're like, they, they're from another planet. I'm thinking those Tour de France winners have to start somewhere, just like me. Two races in Switzerland, two races in France, I won them. Went to Belgium, won six out of eight. That's when I wrote my four goals out. This is written in uh, October of 1978, which would have made him 17. Cycling goals. 79, win the Junior World Championship road race, which he did. 1980, win the Olympic road race. 
not possible because of the boycott. By age 22, win Pro World Championships road race. Age 25, win the Tour de France. As an enormous crowd on Alpe d'Huez now, and still Greg Levant follows the wheel of his teammate Bernardino. There's something magic about the Tour. People talk about the Olympics, they go, that's nothing compared to the Tour as an event. The two riders who have projected themselves without a shadow of a doubt as the two greatest riders in this year's Tour de France. It's a Formula One Grand Prix, New York City Marathon, but doing that for 21 days and with 15 million people. You've got an American going to possibly win the yellow jersey for the first time. Paul, this has been a Tour de France in the greatest tradition of the event before these days have gone. It was the 1985 Tour de France cycling Super Bowl where 200 riders cover 2,200 miles in three weeks that established Greg's legendary career. This incredible story was recently made into a movie for ESPN's 30 for 30 series called Slaying the Badger. Phil, we have a chance to see perhaps an American winner here in Greg LeMond. Absolutely, John, and really for the first time, Greg LeMond is now ready to win the Tour de France and add a little bit more history to this great sporting event. Of course, his main adversary is his own teammate, Bernard Eno. He's the man that LeMond may well have to beat to get that final yellow jersey when the race ends in Paris. You've got 22 teams with nine men on the squad. The unique character who wins the Tour de France has just about everything. There's very unlikely to be more than five guys with this unique ability. You've got to be able to climb mountains, you've got to be able to show the descending skills at 100 kilometers an hour, and above all, you've got to ride the individual time trials. We always call it the race of truth. It's you against the watch. And there aren't many riders got all that ability, so what they do is they choose a leader who they think have that ability, put him in as the leader of the team, and then the others are called the kitchen help. We call them domestiques. They'll come around you like a queen bee. Their job is to make sure their leader is in exactly the position when it matters to win the race, because they know he can do it and they can't. The story in one paragraph goes like this. Greg's French teammate, Bernard Eno, known as the Badger, had won four Tour de France's and nearing the end of his career, wanted a fifth to equal the Tour record. The young Le Monde was stronger. Up front, the argument goes on. Le Monde rebels against the team's instructions. He angrily attempts to persuade his coach that he should be given the chance to win the Tour. But under pressure from his team and coach, he agreed to support Eno rather than take his first victory. Bernard Eno, five Tour wins. The American story, of course, another historic one for Greg Le Monde from Rochelle County, Nevada. A kiss from his wife, Kathy. In return, Eno promised to help LeMond win the Tour de France the following year. You know, it's like, oh no, another repeat. But the Badger reneged on his promise. But everybody feels that Eno is hiding something. And repeatedly attacked LeMond during the race in attempts to win again. LeMond knows now that he must take on Bernard Eno and match him at his speciality. But he failed. LeMond has simply proved himself to be just too strong for the Badger. Greg's first Tour de France win was achieved not only without the support of his coach and team, but also in the face of what many fans believe was outright hostility. It was a cowboy win, reckless and individualistic, and raging against the establishment. But it was the right move and a righteous victory.
Because the race appeared at length on U.S. televisions, America responded. Here's Greg's father, Bob. We got a telegram from Ronald Reagan, the president, and uh, a letter from him, and Greg was invited to the White House, so it was pretty big in that sense. It was really landmark in the history of the tour, an American winning the tour, because afterwards it brought more and more English speakers into the sport of cycling. And Lance Armstrong, you know, well, God bless him, wouldn't have existed without Greg LeMond, because all of a sudden the fact that Greg LeMond won the tour, the world audience of the tour changed completely. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, our This Day in History series continues. This is Our American Stories, and what a story. I did not know this story, and this was brought to us by Greg Engler, who is a cyclist himself, or was, a very competitive one. Actually, I don't think Greg it wouldn't be competitive in almost anything he does. I, I, we have a contest about who he can eat the most cherries. Um, so there's another side of this story, and there's more to it. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And it's the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. Greg LeMond was born this day in 1961. And where we left off, LeMond had won what was called a cowboy victory without his team, without his mentor. But he'd won it, the first American ever to win this coveted award. He made the cover of Sports Illustrated, by the way, for this and was named their Sportsman of the Year. A first also for a cyclist. But what happened next? We are choosing to celebrate this day by looking back at the greatest year in the Tour de France's 100-plus year history and the American man that made it so. And now the proudest moment uh, for Greg LeMond. His name in French means the world. And this is the world of Greg LeMond in Paris today. The first American ever to pull on a winner's yellow jersey in the Tour de France. Less than a year after Greg's first Tour de France victory, this happened. There's turkey hunting in the United States, and turkey hunting is a spring season. I just backed into berry bushes. I was sitting there, and I wanted to look and see where everybody was, and when I stood up, my brother-in-law happened to be up behind it, so he shot at the first thing that moved, and that was me. <laughs> the crazy thing, it didn't hurt. I didn't know it, but my uncle said I had a stream of blood from my neck just pulsating out a steady beat. They called a helicopter, and the helicopter pilot ended up taking him to UC Davis Medical Center. Yeah, you saved my life. If I would have had to go by ambulance, I'd have been dead. I had pellets, about 50 of them, and probably 20 of them went right through me, and I still have 35 uh, in me, you know, two in my heart, three in my liver. And there's no way they can remove them? No. I have chronic lead poisoning. It bothers me. <laughs> so the more I ride now at this age, the worse I get. Greg took what should have been a career-ending two years off from cycling. You come back and race in the 1989 Tour de France. After two years of absolute hell, I went in the Tour, an underdog, everybody wrote me off. 
I was racing against a very strong Finian who won two Tour de France before that. Gregor win the stage. Finian will win the stage. Gregor take yellow. Finian and take yellow. It was just every day was a great story. And um, then we got to about four days to go, and Finian was now 50 seconds ahead of Greg LeMond. Day before the final race, he tapped me on the shoulders and he, congratulations on your second place. Now, he and I were teammates and the same coach. And the, that coach told us and taught me, the race is never over until the finish line, no matter what. It's never over to the finish line. You never take it for granted. And when he did that, I said, uh-oh, you've lost the race. At the beginning, it's advantage Fignon. He will start last wearing the leader's yellow jersey. He chases Le Monde along the course two minutes back. He'll know all the way exactly what time Greg LeMond is doing. Probably shouldn't say this. You wrote your story, and you wanted to turn it in quickly and then get out of there. Back on to the banks of the River Seine, the Eiffel Tower is now looming large on the right shoulder of Laurent Fignon. So I wrote my story, you know, Laurent Fignon withstood challenge by Greg LeMond. You can almost see the difference in the speed, Bill. It's incredible to watch Lamont here. What do you think of this man? has still got pellets in his back from that uh, shooting accident. It was Fignon coming up Champs-Élysées. Four seconds uh, deficit for Laurent Fignon. Everybody's screaming, and you realize, at some point before he made the turn, he had lost. The gap is 48 seconds, Bill. This is the most incredible thing I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> 26, 57, he goes into soft lake. There was this universal cry of The crowd has realized it. Laurent Fignon has bossed the Tour de France by eight seconds. It was this great story dropped in our laps, and all anybody could think of was I'm not going home. I never knew it would affect him so much. I mean, I've learned stuff since then in the 20 plus years after that, he'd never gone to the Champs-Élysées. In his mind, he would be walking to get the mail and he'd count 1,001, 1,002, 1,000, eight seconds. I lost by eight seconds. I just said, hey, Laurent, you won two, now I've won two, and we can see next year, he'll get the third. In 1990, Lamond won his third Tour de France. He looked certain to equal the Badger's record of five wins. But the sport of cycling was about to change dramatically. Lamont, 30 minutes behind the leaders, he quits the race right there. By 92 is when I really became aware of it. Some of the riders looked like it was just a natural progression, or they explained it by weight loss. God, you look back at it, and it was all, it was all lies. Here's Greg's teammate, Andy Hampston. I saw EPO come in. It made phenomenal physiological changes. It could increase blood levels by 20%. I watched individuals and then groups of individuals and entire teams mop the floor with me and everyone else who I knew wasn't doping. Here's Greg on Lance Armstrong. Now loses it to Lance Armstrong here by seven. History's almost repeated. Absolutely remarkable, but look at the face on Armstrong there. He's come here on a mission. He I bought into a story, too, with Lance coming back. He had seven victories. Floyd Lamentis won one, so there are eight American victories. As Landis gets off his bike like he's about to deliver the newspaper. It's a pretty impressive streak there for the Americans. <laughs> uh, 
but it wasn't real. That's a, that's the sad part. His fairy tale just goes on and on. He's got the support of the cancer community, the sponsors, fanatic fans, and I knew it could be suicide, whatever I said. I don't know who I said it to, but I said it's, uh, it's unbelievable. That's all I said. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Le Mans' most notorious remark was, if Lance is clean, it is the greatest comeback in the history of sports. If he isn't, it would be the greatest fraud. His funniest, with the drugs they have these days, one could convert a mule into a stallion. Greg LeMond is now the only American winner of the Tour de France. A lot of cyclists and Americans thought Greg LeMond was jealous of Armstrong. We now know better. Armstrong has been stripped of his Tour victories. This has given many all over the world an even deeper appreciation for what the only American winner of the Tour de France accomplished. And great job on that as always, Greg. And obviously, this one was personal to you. What did uh, what did Greg Lamont mean to you as a cyclist? Um, kind of the same thing that Wayne Gretzky did. He just meant um, just a positive image, a family guy, a guy you wanted to be like. I write my signature today because the way Greg wrote it when I was a kid, I just wanted to be him, not just as a cyclist, but what I saw in his face when he was off the um, race course. And he just was a guy that you wanted to be. Well, and, you know, coming around at that time with all the drugging, what a, what a conundrum for an athlete. I mean, if everybody's doing it, and pretty much it, a new generation came, and it turns out a whole bunch of athletes were doing it. Uh, and he just chose not to, and, he, and in the end, he, he lost. And he knew that's why he lost, and yet he couldn't actually tell the world specifically why. And that just had to be torture for the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, have a, I have actually a, a close uh, friend who is probably the top American racer right now, took 10th in the Tour de France twice, Andy, Andrew Tulansky. And he, he said, if I was presented with that, he's like, all of my team have discussed it, and we probably would have went along. So for somebody to have that kind of character to just say, forget it, I'm not doing it, I, I can't imagine it. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And as always, are this days in history brought to you by Hillsdale College. Go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. Click on the This Day in History segments. I think there are close to 100 now, and it's everything from sports to business leaders. The Alexander Hamilton, we're coming up on the celebration of his anniversary, and what a life. And we have Ron Chernow telling that life story because he wrote the book upon which the play was based and why we now have Hamilton Mania. A terrific read, a hell of a life story, and so is this one, Greg Lamont. What an American story. And what a story about the very thing that David McCulloch likes to write about all the time, and that's character. And if Greg Lamont had anything aside from talent, it was character. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And as always, it's brought to us by the great people at Job Creators Network who do everything they can in their power to advance policies that help small businesses grow into bigger businesses. They're helping the nation's entrepreneurs of this country with regulations and with taxes and, of course, with credit. One of the big problems in this country is credit available to small businesses because of the demise of small banks in this country. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on a guy named Carl Toma. You know, Nadan, you talk about working on, on a ranch or a farm. You think that's a glamorous life and ought to be a fun job. When you're growing up as a kid and, and a teenager, you kind of uh, despise and are angry. I guess maybe that's part of the reason I'm here today is I was bound and determined I was never going to go back in the farming or, or ranching business because every day when you get home from school and the school bus, school and let out at 3.30 and you'd get take about an hour time they run the route to get home. You get home at 4.45 and when you'd get off the school bus there'd be a, I'll never forget it, there'd be you know your dad and mom with the horse saddle and you'd have to get on it and go work cattle or do chores every evening you know till, till dusk. And then in the summer everybody else could hang out and do things. I'd be stuck half the bill fence and so you'd almost have to sometimes pretend you were sick in order to hide in your car while they were working and be laying on the back seat listening to staticky am sports so the career this kid carl toma chose instead of cattle ranching was private equity (laughs) something i'm pretty sure he didn't dream about or know a thing about growing up on an isolated Oklahoma ranch. I grew up 25 miles from the nearest town, and when our family first moved there, we uh, didn't even have plumbing or electricity for the first year, and then I never did have television growing up because back then there wasn't satellite, and we didn't get a telephone until I was in the eighth grade because there was just no way to, to get the lines there. But one thing that, through all of my ranching experience, and I give this credit to my mom, it's had an influence on me to this day. She was very much of a perfectionist, believing in, in doing it right and having a lot of pride in the work you were, were doing. And, you know, in the fencing business, if you want to look down a fence, you should be one straight line as far as you can see because all the posts are lined up right. If the spacing of the wire is supposed to be eight inches, it's not seven or it's not nine, it's eight inches, and you measure it with the, with the, a stick to get it accurately. And so in that sense, some of the great discipline was taught from the early age is, you know, just do it right. If it's done right in anything, it lasts longer. It gives you pride in, in what you're doing, and it usually doesn't take much longer to do something right than it does to do it sloppy. And so I was very fortunate in that sense. While I may complain about working, at least they were teaching me good good practices and applied to any industry. And you know, in a fence well-built can literally last out there because it doesn't rain much. And if you don't have a lot of weeds to blow against, it can last 50 years. It's kind of hard to believe. <laughs> and Carl hopes that the fruit of his work in private equity lasts more than 50 years. 
Private equity is the business of investors, usually the retirement funds of folks like teachers and firefighters and university endowments, giving them money to grow it and grow it by investing on their behalf in other companies to help them grow. In the fruits of that growth, helping them, the company, and the whole world that uses their products. A pretty simple thing, a pretty cool thing, and also a pretty daunting thing to be responsible for someone else's money. But oddly, it was something that Carl was pretty prepared for. Why a lot of people like to be ranchers, and I almost contrast that versus farmers, is because you're your own boss. Your success is kind of predicated on your own judgment and and because ranching doesn't get any subsidies like you do for farmers where if you've got a 160 acre allotment of corn you can get paid basically not to farm whereas you nobody pays you not to to ranch so I guess you grew up in an environment where you really never had a boss so I we just always grew up more in this sense of independence and out of that I guess I always just kind of liked it, investing and feeling like you've got control of, of your own own destiny and it allows you to think of creative ways to do things and so I don't know I guess it's just kind of been our genes for our whole life just like my granddad coming from Texas to northeastern New Mexico to the homestead I mean I don't you know that's to me some form of entrepreneurism you go out there and you got enough money to buy one or two cows and 30, 40 years later, you know, the power of compounding kind of pays off. And I think that's uh, kind of the way all ranching is, is nobody in agriculture can get rich overnight, but if you're steady as you go, compounding just works. So, you know, if you got three head of cattle and you keep one back to breed it, you know, in the next year you got four and then it just keeps going. And, and that's kind of no different than the way investing is today. You know, you want to work with companies and help them grow and one of the reasons private equity does better than most people like to give it credit is that we can't just sell tomorrow so we got to keep building and growing these companies and lo and behold you know five years later the company's doubled in size whereas a lot of people would buy it on Monday and sell it on Tuesday if you know the stock has gone up 10 percent but in private equity you got to think a little bit longer term. Carl and his firm Toma Bravo have been highly successful for their investors and also for the companies that they've invested in. One of them has had to move buildings three different times because they're continually hiring a ton more people and Carl has been rewarded as such. You know, this is always a, a tough one when you decide what you're going to do with the money you've made. And, and what we've done is that I've got two kids. Each of them's getting 10% of our net worth, and the other 80% is either going to be given away outright or going into foundations. So Carl's not spending most of it on himself, as some do, or passing on most of it to his kids, as most do. He wants to make sure that the vast majority of the money that he made by helping others is going to help even more people, mainly by bringing the beauty of art to those who might be missing it. I do feel the arts, if they're done in the right way, can bridge gaps, can inspire people and, and bring the 
delight people's you know lives and maybe because I didn't grow up with much art around me I probably am more in awe of that than if somebody had grew up in the city of Chicago and had taken art for granted their whole life so but even in a great art city like Chicago a lot of its citizens haven't been to its art institute which is truly one of the best art museums in the world and for many they can't go as often as they'd like. I think some of the arts institutions are kind of pricing them out of the market. That's one of our pet peeves here, and I don't know, it's tough, and I guess that's the reason we try to support the arts. It is getting where it's unfair with the city parking now in a family of four to go down to the Art Institute on a Sunday afternoon is gonna cost them a minimum of $100, and that's a lot of money. You know, you're out $25 for parking. You're out another $50 or more for tickets and you gotta eat. So, you know, when people have to pay $100 to go to the Art Institute on Sunday afternoon, we're losing some of our, our audience. And it's just not, it doesn't seem quite fair, but the Art Institute would give you their side of the story. So I'm not meaning to pick on them. I'm, we're big, big supporters of them. So I guess we're not supporting them enough. <laughs> And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Carl Toma. And again, it's our American Dreamer series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. our American stories and we return to Alex's American Dreamer feature on Carl Toma, the guy who's donating 80% of his wealth that he's earned in private equity. And when we left off, Carl was speaking about just how expensive it is for families to go to an art museum or performance. And that's where Alex picks things up. Thankfully, there are some art institutions that have been attuned to this challenge, like the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which puts on 650 performances of Shakespeare and other plays and musicals in just the 365 days of a single year. That's been an organization that my wife's been involved with for 25 years since it was just struggling to start. And the board would have to pass the half to meet payroll. And now they've got just finished that third stage over at Navy Pier, but they go out into all the communities and do all these summer programs. And I think by now there's over 500,000 kids have gone over there for performances. And, and it's, you know, that kind of art, I think definitely just gives kids a sense that they can do things and you don't have to get A's in math to not feel like you can make a contribution. And they, people need something to hold on to to have some self-confidence. That's as you know, part of the problem with our issues here in the Chicago, we, you know, all the murder rates would plummet if we could find ways to get these people jobs or get them involved in something where they, they got all this pent-up energy that's just being channeled in all the wrong directions. Jobs and creating arts give people a fulfillment that few other things can. 
And especially when you can combine them both. But there's challenges here that Carl is wrestling with too. One of the things that you might see the not-for-profit industry is facing is that so many not-for-profit organizations or museums or theaters are relying on interns, but the interns aren't getting paid. But the fact they're not getting paid means that by default you're discriminating against those people who don't have the wherewithal or the economic background to go take these summer jobs. And so there's starting to be a movement afoot, and our foundations are thinking of doing this. This practice has just got to, to stop because it helps level the playing field that if you get this job, you're going to get paid at least minimum wage. But I think it is time we face up to it as this deal of kind of exploiting internships because we're teaching you something you should be willing to work for free. If McDonald's says we're going to give out internships and you're not going to get paid to flip burgers, we know about how long that would last. And the not-for-profit world has created more barriers that we got to start to knock down. Maybe we don't need to empower quite as many, you know, upper-middle-class white people. Maybe we need to figure out how we empower more lower minority-class people to get into the museum so they can start to appreciate it and use it as an inspiration. And a lot of not-for-profits kind of, they're not practicing what they preach. Only wealthy kids can afford not to get paid. But what's interesting is that in the financial industry, many interns are paid $40,000 a year for interning, whereas many nonprofits aren't paying for their labor at all. And this is also true of politicians. Many of them even call for raising the minimum wage, but then don't pay any wage to their interns. It's just like sports. How'd that whole spin out of control where a, a football ticket cost you hundreds of dollars to go to a game? And then we wonder why we've got this kind of the haves and the have-nots is that we've kind of lost sight of why people were granted NFL franchises. It was for the whole community, and then now, now it seems to be something where only the billionaires get to play. And what I love about Carl is that you can just hear him genuinely wrestling with these big issues in his own mind and trying to do something about it. It's not what many expect from private equity folks that the media has painted as heartless and vain. Although some of those folks certainly do exist. I don't know why people do this. There is too many fancy parties thrown by certain wealthy individuals that I, it just unfortunately, I, I don't know. It's, uh, you don't hear Warren Buffett, you know, renting out some stadium in Las Vegas and spending $5 million for the Rolling Stones to come in and perform. And I think sometimes a few people, and I mean it's very few, it's probably less than 1%, just do some really extravagant things then it gets used against, against the whole industry. Just as the media and politicians use stories of bad cops to make the vast majority of good ones look bad, and the bad Catholic priests to make the vast majority of good ones look bad. 
These are all human institutions where there are going to be bad apples. I'm sorry, there are. But the vast majority of Americans are good people. You know, and anybody in the ranching business, it's kind of a, a code of honor. Nobody ever tells anybody, you know, how big their ranch is. That's really not relevant. <laughs> and so I think you just grow up with that mindset is that life is not about bragging. You know, and I sometimes think that I guess we have to blame Forbes. When Forbes decided to go around and start ranking everybody's wealth, what in the hell difference does that make? <laughs> you know, and maybe corporations, because they're public, you have to do it. But individuals, why, why do they need the Forbes 500? What, what's the relevance of that? <laughs> you know, I think it just creates a false sense of capitalism. It, you know, because it's, you know, people accumulate that wealth generally because they're creating something of value that's sustainable. Instead, everybody just hones in on how much somebody is worth. Well, in a more appropriate discussion of what money people have, today we often hear about how public pension funds, the government retirement funds that private equity firms help invest on behalf of, have huge deficits where they can't fulfill the retirement benefits that they promised their workers. One of the few states that actually has done this Right, as the state of Minnesota, their funding was so well-funded and their performance of investing groups like ours and others, they were able to increase somebody's pension because of their performance. You know, when you live here in Illinois, everybody's in fear, well, I even get my pension. In, in Minnesota, you actually, with a little luck, you know, you're going to get a bigger payout, so you can kind of be assured people and probably Minnesota aren't complaining about private equity as much as they might be in Illinois, because in Illinois we can put up boxcar numbers and we still won't have enough money to pay the pensions. <laughs> but to go to somewhere all the pensions are fully funded, then all of a sudden this money we're making, we're not, it doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> if all of a sudden I'm getting another 50 bucks a month on my pension, you know. But down here, we give them that extra $50, and that just means their deficit's slightly less. And so, but At the end of the day, it's, it's setting expectations right, and they've set expectations wrong in states like Illinois and have overpromised. And they really did. Even on a basic level, I think we all get this with marriage, right? When we communicate with our wives what time we're going to be home, or they communicate with us, life's managing expectations and not overpromising. Obviously, you want to deliver, but talk through this more, Carl. In America, we do things and figure out how we're going to pay for it later. You know, I don't know whether that's going out on Black Friday and buying a fifth television set for your house you don't need, and then how are you going to pay for it? You put it on your Visa card. You know, maybe if you don't have the cash in the bank, you don't need a fifth TV. And I think that just happened a little bit with promises were made with nobody having to pay for it, and then eventually you have to pay for it. And what's tragic is how this problem has harmed my home state and Carl's adopted state that its people really love besides these government-created problems. Their pension debts and spending debts more broadly have forced upon its citizens the highest tax burden in the whole country, with a median household paying $8,162 in state and local taxes, 
effectively almost a 15% income tax. And that's on top of the ways the federal government taxes us. And for many Illinoisans, they're paying the government more every month in property taxes for just the privilege of the government allowing them to have a home than the amount of their mortgage, the cost of the actual home itself. It's tough when you've got states like Tennessee, which is not a bad place to live, or Texas, where people can move there and not pay any state income taxes or pay these high property taxes. And, you know, and it's no fun waking up every day about everybody just, you know, it just kind of depresses you reading about this problem. And it's, I don't know, at some point it's just out of sight, out of mind, so I'll just move. And from 2006 to 2015, 700,000 people net did just that in Illinois. And Illinois led the nation in population loss and more want to go. Great job as always on this, Alex, on our American Dreamers series, Carl Thomas story, here on Our American Stories.